Thank you for coming tonight. We're, this is our second session of this study on apologetics. So uh, you've heard this top, you've heard the saying, you can win the battle, but still lose the war, right? Uh, so there's a couple of examples that I, this one is completely hypothetical. This is not a, not based on an actual person, but let's say there's a father who is tired of how lazy and sloppy his son is. So he sends him away to a military school. And now he's won the battle because his son's got his hair high and tight and his shirt tucked in and shoes polished and he's got to get up early and, and follow structure and, and he's, he's following rules. He's, winning, he's won that battle, but he resents his dad for sending him away. He falls in with a group of fellow cadets that are violent and rebellious and they begin to influence him because his dad's not there to be an influence anymore. And so by the time he graduates... He's become a law-breaking man, and he is destructive and, and just a mean, nasty person. So you win a battle, but you lose the war. Unintended consequence. Now, that's a fictitious example, but here's a true story. So in the 1950s and 60s, communist China had this uh, program they called the Great Leap Forward. Some of you know this, where they wanted to bring China up to speed with the rest of the nations militarily and and economically. One of the policies they came up with was there were four pests they wanted to completely eradicate. And one of them was sparrows, little birds, because those sparrows ate the farmer's seeds and grains. And, and so it, it held back production on the farms. And so they, they went out and they killed every sparrow in China. They won the battle. Problem was they didn't think about the fact that sparrows are the main predator of locusts. And so the locust population exploded and the locusts ate all the crops and there was a famine that killed thousands of people. You win a battle, you lose a war. So last week we talked about if you want to be a defective, an effective defender of the faith, it takes three things. An effective or, or an authentic Christian walk. And by the way, let me just stop and say this. A lot of us feel insecure about our ability to defend our faith. We wish we had more education. We wish we, we, wish we were more articulate. We wish uh, we were quicker on our feet. But I think an authentic Christian walk is the best apologetic there is. There's no substitute for it. And if you feel insecure as an apologist, just understand, any argument the smartest Christian can come up with, there's a non-Christian response. There's an argument on that side. There is no non-Christian argument against a life that looks like Jesus. You understand that, right? When you live in a way that looks like Jesus, the world has no way to say, oh, you're, you're phony. So the best, if you can only do one thing to defend your faith and witness for Christ, is to live like Christ, is to be a true disciple. So that's number one. You have to have uh, an authentic Christian walk. Number two, you need a wise approach, and that's what we're going to start talking about tonight. And number three, you need to have confidence in the truth. You need to know when you're questioned that the truth is on your side, and that's what we'll spend most of our time talking about starting in mid-September. Uh, so this wise approach, we need to understand how 
that how important that is because it's not enough to know the truth and it's not enough to to be a good person if you don't approach unbelievers in a way that has wisdom if you don't walk with wisdom towards outsiders as colossians 4 5 says so just to give you a couple of examples there are plenty of christians that i've known in my life and i'm not thinking of anyone in this room if you in case you're wondering uh plenty of christians who the focus of their Christian walk is to avoid evil, to, to just separate themselves from the world, which, to be fair, is biblical. We are supposed to be not a friend of the world. We are supposed to separate from things that are not holy. And yet that's not the sum total of what it means to be a disciple. After all, at the end of his life, when Jesus is standing with his disciples in Galilee, Matthew 28, he didn't say, go therefore and stay away from sinners. He said, go and make disciples. You can't make disciples if the whole goal of your life is to stay as far away from sinful people as possible. But, but some of these folks, they win the battle. They accomplish what they set out to do. They live their whole lives and they manage not to use bad words and they manage not to get drunk and they manage not to sleep around and they, they manage to stay away from the, the practices of this world but they never influence anyone to Christ because they, they're never around people who need the gospel. They do their best to avoid those kinds of people. And a lot of those folks would say, well, I'm just practicing lifestyle evangelism. But you're really not if you're not in a relationship with people who need Christ. So that's one example of that's an approach that seems to make sense, but it's not a wise approach toward outsiders. Here's another one. There are other Christians, and again, not thinking of anyone in this room in particular, but I've known Christians like this, and you have too, who love engaging with unbelievers because they, they like a good fight. They just enjoy it. That is, to them, that's what gets their blood pumping. That's what makes them feel alive is when they're in a heated debate with someone over anything. It doesn't really matter what, as long as they're, they feel like they're getting their say. And, and don't get me wrong, boldness is a gift, and I, when I meet these people, I always, I always think to myself, if you could just redeem that and give that completely over to the Lord, you'd be a powerful tool. But boldness without wisdom can do incredible damage. Uh, those folks constantly choose the wrong battles. They get heated and, and, and angry over inconsequential things, things that don't matter in the eternal scheme of things. And, and so they don't win anybody to Christ. They win some arguments just because they're, they're older and, and maybe more articulate and, and quicker than the person they're talking to, but they don't win that person to Christ. Nobody I know was ever argued into the kingdom. It doesn't mean debates are useless. You can, you can break down someone's objections through debating them skillfully, but you're not going to argue them into the kingdom. You're certainly not going to insult them into the kingdom, okay? And, and in the meantime, they tend to be so full of themselves, that they drive people away and they make evangelism harder for the rest of us. So again, you can win some battles and lose the war. So a wise approach is important, not just for the sake of the people you're trying to win, but for all of us. We need to walk with wisdom toward outsiders. So three weeks we're going to spend on that. And tonight we're going to talk about how to keep the focus on the gospel. When you're relating to people who are not believers, keep the focus on the gospel. So several scriptures uh, to share with you. First one's from 1 Timothy 1, 3-4. Remember, 
Paul writes these letters, uh, some of these letters to younger ministers, guys who are new, either new to the ministry uh, and not as far along in Christ as he is. And he's, he's saying, here's, here's what you need to do. And you may never be on staff at a church, but what he says still matters because he's giving advice on how to walk the Christian walk. He says to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So there he's talking about stand in the way of false teachers. We all get that, right? If there's somebody teaching what is not true, you need to stand up to them and make sure they don't have a platform in your church. Okay, we, are, we agree on that. But then he says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he's, he says, yeah, false teaching is bad, but so is going on and on and on about stuff that doesn't matter. Stuff that's not the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2.14, he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And then he jumped in, when you jump a few verses further to verse 23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We're not supposed to be known as argumentative. We're not supposed to be known as, as people who are always fighting. Not supposed to be, he said, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. The way I love to sum that up is our job is not to win arguments, it's to win people. So Paul is telling Timothy, listen, I, I know, I know, I know there's, you're going to hear people say things that's going to drive you nuts because you believe differently and you know you're right. But don't chase after every argument. It doesn't matter. Focus on the things that matter. Focus on the things that have to do with eternity. Not just Timothy, though. Titus is a similar situation. Titus, again, a younger man who needs some advice. In Titus 3.9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Just for the record, when he talks about genealogies, he's not saying it is a sin to be involved in studying your family tree. Okay? In, in the Jewish world, there were lots of debates over, well, I think so-and-so was the father of this saint. No, 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 I think it was so-and-so. And I think my dad was part of that line. And they would argue and argue about these things about which there was no way to prove who was right. So why are you arguing about it? Why are you spending so much energy? It is a tendency of less mature believers to want to fight over every point of disagreement. You just cannot stand to hear someone present an opinion that you think is wrong without correcting them. A more mature believer says, I disagree with you, but that's not worth fighting over. I'll let you run your mouth off. Doesn't hurt me in any way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna save my, my bullets for the fights that count. And that's what Paul is encouraging over and over and over again through his letters. 
Now, a lot of you know that I, I quote Tim Keller often. Uh, never met him, but I, I admire his ministry. Uh, he, for those of you who don't know, years and years ago, planted a church in Manhattan. Not exactly ground zero of where we, you know, the, the, the great place to plant a church. Uh, and he wasn't your typical church planner. He wasn't this young, hip guy. He was a little older. He was balding. Uh, he was a former professor. He was Presbyterian. The church he planted had traditional music and, and you know, the liturgy. And you would think, oh, that's not going to work. They won thousands of people to Christ over the decades. And often he would have conversations because this is Manhattan. A lot of the people in that city had no history with Christianity at all. None. What they knew about the Bible, if they knew anything, was probably untrue. Or what they thought about Christianity, if they thought about it at all, was hostile. And so he would have a conversation often, over and over again, that would go something like this. A person would come to his church because they'd been invited by a friend. And after they'd come a few Sundays and they saw that to their surprise, nobody was handling snakes or foaming at the mouth. Nobody was, you know, dancing with glee because people were going to hell. Um, they would come to it and they would say, hey, um, I really like this. I, I really like the way you do things here. And I like the things you say about Jesus. And I'm, I'm surprised at how much I like this. But the, I just want you to know, I can never be a Christian because, and then they would list some objections. I could never be a Christian because of what the Bible says about sexuality, or I could never be a Christian because of what the Bible teaches about women, or I could never be a Christian because, of, uh, because I believe in evolution and, and the Bible says that God created the world and I just can't accept that. And so or they would bring up some objection. And he, he had a standard answer. And his answer was something like this. Oh, that's, you know, that's, that's interesting. And, and we can talk about that. And if you want to, we can, we can sit down and I can share with you what I believe and, and hear what you believe and we can hash it out. But here's what I encourage you to do instead. First, do some research and decide if you believe whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then nothing he said matters. Nothing he said about that thing you just mentioned matters or anything else. You can just go home and forget all about this. But if he did rise from the dead, then what he believed about that and everything else is absolutely true, whether you want it to be true or not. And that was his approach. Get back to the gospel because that's what matters. We can talk about those other things. They matter. They're important. But let's talk about what matters first. It's kind of similar to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, or if, it's, if it hadn't been a while, I'll just remind you. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing hot-button issue after hot-button issue. Because apparently the people at Corinth have written him letters saying, hey, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? Uh, so for instance, uh, who's the best preacher? Is it, is it you, Paul? Is it Peter? Is it Apollos? Uh, what do we do when there's someone acting immorally in our church? Do we forgive them? Do we just, do we just put up with it? Do we discipline them? Uh, is it okay for Christians to take each other to court? We have that happening in our church. Should we allow that? Um, is it okay to get married? I mean, if Jesus could come back at any time, isn't it better just to stay single? And 
is it okay to eat food that, that has probably been sacrificed to an idol? Or is that a sin to do? Uh, are people who speak in tongues more spiritual than people who don't? I mean, you read this list and you think, my goodness, I'm glad I'm not the pastor of the church in Corinth. There's a Corinth, Texas. Some of you know where it is up near Denton. I always, I've always thought I would not want to be the pastor of First Baptist Corinth. You know, it might be a great church, but I'd be too afraid it'd be like this one. Um, so Paul addresses all those things because those are all important questions. But then he gets to chapter 15. And here's what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes on, 58 verses, talking about how Jesus died for our sins and then rose from the grave. And why that's so important. and Why that's more important than any of the other stuff they've been discussing. So it's, it's him saying, okay, we've been dealing with all this stuff that you're worried about, but let me remind you about what really matters. And it's the gospel. So again, similar to what Tim Keller does and similar to what I'm saying we should do as wise believers. So what is the gospel? I, it, I would bet, if I were a betting person, that nine out of 10 of you at least, would be able to answer that question correctly. But I don't want to take that for granted because I've been around too many Christians who use the term gospel to just mean biblical truth or Christian doctrine. They'll, they'll, say, uh, they'll say something that they know is true because it's in the scriptures and think that they've shared the gospel, but they haven't. So let me give you an example, just random example. You and I both know that it's wrong to take the Lord's name in vain. God's name is holy. You shouldn't use it in a way that's disrespectful, that's flippant. Uh, the third commandment in, in, in Exodus 20, that's all you need to know. That's true. But that's not the gospel. So if I'm at a football game, and yes, this will happen every time I'm at, I'm at a football game. If I'm at a football game and the guy in front of me, I hear him say the name Jesus Christ, except he's not using it as a name. He's not praying. He's not talking about our Lord. He's using it as a swear word. And if I tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, you want to stop? I mean, I'm a Christian here. You, you know, you're, you're taking my Lord's name in vain. That's within my rights to do that. But I'm not defending my faith when I do that. I hope you understand that. That's not the gospel. That's a discussion about biblical truth. And you and I could talk about whether we should expect unbelievers to respect our truth or not, our, our commandments from God or not. That's another discussion. But that's not defending the faith. That's something different because that's not the gospel. There are lots of biblical truths, there are lots of Christian doctrines that are all true and they're all valuable, but they aren't the gospel. The gospel is something very, very specific, and that is the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus. The gospel is the music behind every book in the Bible, including the Old Testament. You can find the gospel in every book of the Old Testament if you, if you look hard enough, and then it comes to the forefront in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels. Why don't we call them the four Gospels, right? You understand, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the story of Jesus' life, but they're not biographies. A biography is, is 
where you take and you list all the relevant details of a person's life. We don't know all the relevant details of Jesus' life. We don't know what happened between the time he was 12 years old and the time he was around 30. In fact, we don't know anything about what happened between the time he was about two years old and the time he was 12. There's lots that gets left out of the Gospels that we'd love to know. So it's not a biography. It's something different. It is a gospel. Gospel means good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying, this has happened. And because this has happened, everything's changed. And then you get to the rest of the Bible, the the New Testament books, the book of Acts, and then especially the letters, and that's God saying, okay, because this happened in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is what it means for us. And it it explains the gospel and how it changes our life and how we can bring it into our lives. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that you and I are sinners, and that's why the world's so messed up, and that's why we can't get to God, and that's why no matter what we do, we can't experience the life we were meant to live, nor can we escape death. But God loved us enough that he wouldn't let things be. He wouldn't let things take their natural course. So he, he, he came on a rescue mission. He sent his son, Jesus, God become man, into this world who lived a perfect life, the life we should have lived, and died in our place. He died the death we should have died so that we can have the reward he should have had. His death was the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we don't have to be punished for what we did. So we don't have to pay for the mistakes that we've made. But at the same time, it was also a defeat of the forces of evil. On the cross, Jesus was defeating Satan and, and every evil plan to destroy this world. And he was gaining victory over them. Then, on the third day after he died... He rose from the grave, and, and, and that defeated the last enemy, which is death. And now we know that he's coming back someday at a time we least expect it to finish the work, to, to finish what he accomplished at the cross by wiping out all evil, and he will sit on a throne on a redeemed earth and govern his redeemed people in a world that will never end. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, it doesn't have to be in exactly that form, but that's the gospel. Now, think about the way Jesus lived. Think about the conditions of, that he came into. Let me say it that way. Jesus came into a, a real world where there were all these issues that he could have gotten involved in. You may or may not know this, but when Jesus was on the earth, there was a big controversy in Judaism. And Jesus was Jewish. He was a Jew. He grew up going to synagogue and being taught by rabbis. There were two rabbis that everyone argued over who was right. One was named Hillel and one was named Shammai. You don't really see their names so much in scripture, but you see some of these arguments coming out where people will come to Jesus and say, hey, you know, this side says this and this side says that. Which one do you agree with? There were also two parties within Judaism. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We do see them in Scripture. And and, and people were always trying to get Jesus to to weigh in on which one is right, which one should we agree with. And there were also some political parties within Judaism. They, They weren't 
political like we think of today. They, they didn't have party conventions and presidential elections or anything like that because Israel wasn't, wasn't its own nation. But there were, there were groups, there, were, there was a group of politically active Jews who believed the way for Israel to survive was to cooperate with Rome. And we called them the Herodians. They, they said, hey, Rome's in charge. They've got our best interests in mind. They've got all the money. They build the roads. They're making life better for us. Let's cooperate with them. Let's be as good Romans as we can be, and, and things will go well for us. And on the other side, there were the zealots who said, no, the, the best thing for Israel is to ex is expel the Romans from our country. So let's not cooperate with them in anything. In fact, let's Let's ambush them. Let, let's, let's create acts of terrorism. Let's try to drive them out of our country. And so, you know, you think about these conflicts, that's bigger than any red or blue thing we have in our country today. And through the, throughout the Gospels, you see people keep trying to drag Jesus into these things, sometimes his own disciples. And Jesus consistently refused. It's not what he was going to get into. He kept saying, I'm here to seek and save the lost. That's what I came to do. I came to seek and to save the lost. And then here comes Paul. You know, Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus. And then he does this radical thing. He decides to take the gospel into the Gentile world. Nobody had ever done that before. And so his experience was completely different from what Jesus experienced, because Jesus spent his whole life in Israel. Paul goes into the wider Greek and Roman world. And can you imagine, I often laugh to think about Paul, who was a Pharisee, as, as traditional a Jew as you can imagine, how disgusted he had to be on a daily basis by what he saw in the Gentile world. All the idolatry, all the sexual immorality, all the slavery and the economic injustice, and most of all, these are the people who are oppressing my people and have been oppressing my people for centuries. And yet, you don't see Paul walking around saying, hey, people of God, let's unite and and." and boycott this, this senator because he stands for uh, things that we don't agree with. Let's go stand outside the bathhouse or, or, or let's march around the Olympic Games and, and tell them what sinners they are. You don't see him doing that. In fact, he doesn't talk much about Greek immorality except when he's talking to Christians and saying, hey, remember how you used to act? Remember before you came to Jesus, you used to act like all your neighbors. Don't be like that. That's what you used to be. But he doesn't waste his time arguing over things that don't matter, eternally speaking. He seems content to say, people who don't know Jesus are going to act like people who don't know Jesus. That's not my business to try to change their behavior. I just want them to know Christ. He focused on the gospel. We see it, in fact, great example is Acts 17. Paul finds himself in Athens. Right? So, so Athens is the capital of all Greek culture. That's where, that's where the fashions came from. Right? If today New York and, and Hollywood are where our fashions come from, uh, thought-wise and, and entertainment-wise, it was Athens in the ancient world. And, and Acts 17 tells us that Paul was provoked. He was walking around looking at the city and he was offended. He was disgusted at the things he saw. So then the town leaders come to him and they say, we want you to explain yourself. And he has this opportunity to speak to the thought leaders of the culture. 
And it's interesting that he doesn't stand up and say, you people are fools. You're going to burn in hell, and I'm going to be there to watch, and it's going to be just. No, he does his best to explain the gospel in terms that he never uses anywhere else. Why? Because those are people who don't know anything about the Bible, and he's trying to appeal to them on their terms. Why? Because he wants them to know Christ. He's focused on the gospel. So, let me just bring it home, so to speak, and just talk about specifics. What does it look like for us to choose our battles and keep the focus on the gospel? I'm going to talk about four different scenarios. One is when you see immoral lifestyles around you. Does anybody ever see people acting in a way that's unbiblical in our culture today? Anybody? Anybody? I'm shocked. Yeah, we know lots of people. Even, even in this part of the world where there's a church on every corner, uh, we see people living unbiblically. And just to, just to focus it even narrower, let's talk about sexuality. Uh, most people these days know what we believe on this topic. And a lot of our non-Christian friends are very offended at what we believe about sexuality. And so some of them will come and try to debate us about that. I think it's good for you to be able to answer those questions. I think it's good for you to be able to say, listen, I, I know you don't agree with this, but God didn't create these rules because he's trying to make life hard for us. He created these rules because he loves us and he's trying to save us from heartache. And it's hard for you to see this, but it's actually for your good. It's good for us to be able to engage in that way. God's commands are loving. They're not burdensome. But we need to remember, our goal is not to change their behavior. Do we want their behavior to change? Absolutely. But if we make that our goal, we'll miss the point. So, so again, just to get a very, very uh, specific example, let's say you have a friend, a family member, a coworker, someone else you care about who is gay. If you make it your goal to say, I'm going to convince this person they're not actually gay, I'm going to convince them they need to marry somebody of the opposite gender and then everything will be okay. First of all, you're probably not going to win that battle. But even if you do, even if you're the most persuasive person on earth and you convince them to do that, are they then saved? Of course not. There's billions of heterosexual people who are on the path to hell. You're not saving somebody by working on their behavior. Your job is to love them and bring them to Christ. He's the one that changes their behavior. He's the one that sets them free of that or any other sin. Love them and bring them to Christ. And that goes for any immoral lifestyle, any immoral behavior. doesn't mean we shouldn't, as Christians, work and help people like, for instance, with addictions or uh, try, to, try to work on problems in society that are harming others. That, that's a good thing to do as long as, especially as long as it creates pathways for gospel conversations. Because again, I love, I love the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous came out of a Christian background and the principles are straight out of scripture and that's wonderful and there's been <clears throat> who knows how many people helped by that program and, and similar programs 
and, and, and that's God's work. But an alcoholic who has renounced alcohol and is, is clean and sober still needs Jesus. So the, the goal must be, if we're believers, if we want to defend our faith, it must be, I want to get to the point where I can tell you about what Christ has done for me. All right, second one, political disagreements. Uh, you know, these days, it's safe to say almost everybody who is politically active knows what most people like us believe about a wide range of political issues. And some unbelievers want to debate that kind of stuff. Some unbelievers uh, are very offended that Christians bring their biblical convictions into the voting booth. They, they say, oh, you, you know, you should keep church and, faith, church and state separate. And what you believe based on scripture has nothing to do with the way the rest of the world should be governed. And so you, you leave that out. And, and I think it is good for us as Christians to be able to sit down with someone like that and say, well, let me explain to you why I believe this. I think it's also good, this is what a lot of us aren't good at, to know the difference between the things we believe because of Scripture and the things we just believe because of our own preferences and convictions, right? I believe that the life inside a mother's womb is a human life, and therefore we should do everything we can to stop abortion. Uh, because the scriptures say so, because the scriptures say that God crafts us in our mother's womb because he knows us before we were born. I believe that because it's in the scripture. I also believe that I have the right to own the shotgun my dad gave me when I was eight years old and that that's a, that is a fundamental right. I can't defend that with scripture. I believe it. I, I, I vote accordingly. I can't say chapter and verse why that's true. So as Christians, I think it's important for us to make that distinction. These are the things we'll die on a hill for. These over here are the things, yeah, I'll vote about, but okay, you may be right, I may be right. Even so, even on the things that we know are true because they're in Scripture, we still need to be humble. We still need to be respectful. We still need to be gentle and kind, and, and, and the focus is on that person, not necessarily the argument, because that's the point. That's the point. Is your goal to make a pro-choice person into a pro-life person, or is your goal to make them a believer in Jesus? If you convince somebody that, uh, you know, that an unborn life is, is a real human life, good on you. I, I would, I'd give you a high five for it. But that person's still not saved. They still need Jesus. It doesn't matter how they vote. They need Christ. So, you know, I, since I know... This is a big thing. I, I need to say this. There's a, there's a key test I want you to give yourself. If you spend more time rehearsing political arguments in your head than you do thinking about how to share the gospel with people, that's a problem. If you get more excited about listening to or reading about political arguments than you do about reading God's word, that's a problem. That's a sign of idolatry, and we need to repent, or we can't, we can't defend the faith effectively, okay? Keep the focus on the gospel. Here's a third one, secondary biblical issues. Now, if I didn't get in trouble with those first two, I might really get in trouble with these last two. So, uh, you know, just remember, I have a family. Just want to tell you that. So, uh, 
When I say secondary biblical issues, this is what I'm talking about. There are things that are in the Bible. And because they're in the Bible, they're important. But they don't rise to the level of, you've got to believe this or you're not part of the family of God. Here's an example. The example I always turn to is the way the end times are going to happen. Right? There are three big schools of thought you know, about, about how to interpret the prophecies in the Bible, and we don't need to go down that road. But let me just put it this way. You and I may disagree on whether or not there's a rapture, and if there's a rapture, when it's going to happen, and if, you know, what this particular sign in Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation or Matthew 24, what that means. We may disagree about that stuff. As long as we agree that Christ is returning someday and he's going to rule the world, then you and I are on the same page. And, and, and by the way, I got news for you. We're probably both wrong. We're probably all wrong. I, I really do believe that when it happens, every single person's going to go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I really don't think Brother Brill Cream, who sold all these books, is going to be like, see, it's just like I told you. That's just me. But that's, that's an example of a secondary biblical issue. Is it in the scriptures? Yes. Is it important? Absolutely. Should you study it? Of course but it doesn't determine whether someone is part of the family of God or not based on you have to believe this or you have to believe that. Okay, a little more controversial example, okay? And I'm not trying to open any cans of worms. I'm only going to say what I'm going to say tonight, and that's this. But the role of women in the church. There are Christians who, okay, let's just say this. Is it okay for a woman to teach a Bible study in a room when there are men present? Some Christians say yes, some say no. Is it okay for a woman to be a deacon? Is it okay for a woman to be ordained as a minister? Is it okay for a woman to be a senior pastor? There are different Christians who say different things about all those questions, and yet, if they're following Jesus, they're all part of the same family. May not be able to worship in the same church, because that's a pretty important thing, but we're all going to end up in heaven together. I hope you can agree with me when I just said that. That is not a first order issue. Is it important? Absolutely. Especially important to any woman who wants to know, what can I do in this church? But it's not a first order issue. When I say, okay, so what do I mean when I say first order issue? Here's how I define it. Other people may define it differently. But I think a first order issue is something that falls into one of three categories. It, it has to do with either who God is, and what his nature is, what he's like. God is righteous. God is all-powerful. God is gracious. God is wrathful, or whatever the case may be. Those are first-order issues. Number two, how we get saved. How we come to know the Lord, and our sins are forgiven, and we become part of his family. And then number three, the truth of his word. Is the Bible true or not? And the reason... I need to explain this a little bit. I'm not saying that if you've got a friend or if you yourself have a part of the Bible that you're like, I just have a hard time believing this. You know, if you've got a friend who comes to you and says, yeah, I read the book of Jonah and it's a great story. I just, I don't see how somebody can, you know, live in the belly of a big fish for three days and then survive. You know, I would argue with that person, if God can create a universe, he can keep somebody alive for three days in the belly of a fish. That's not a problem for me. But if it's a problem for them, okay, that doesn't mean they're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. If they believe in Jesus, they trust in his blood to save them, they're saved. 
What I am saying is, when people challenge the authority of Scripture, we have to defend it. Because if the Scriptures are seen as incorrect or not important, then we don't have the gospel anymore. Then we don't have the nature of God anymore. I mean, this is the only place we have that tells us the good news. So you have to defend the authority and the truth of Scripture. That's a first-order issue. Everything else is less than that. So try to keep that in mind when you argue with people. Unbelievers will sometimes come to you and, and want to talk about prophecy. And what do you believe about the end of the world? Do you believe this or this or this? And you can say, well, you know, that's, here's what I believe. But you know what's more important? They may want to talk to you about, well, does your church let women preach? Okay, we can talk about that. But what's really important is, was Jesus risen from the grave? Did Christ die for our sins? Finally, number four. Man, I might be late for finance committee. Man, will they ever forgive me? Um, that's not a first order issue, right, right Alan? <laughs> so my last one is what I would call in-house disputes. This is, comes down to my church is better than your church. So for instance, um, you're at work and you hear a coworker say something about a certain televangelist that you don't like. And you just are tempted to go over and say, ah, you, you shouldn't listen to that guy. He's a con artist. Don't you, don't you know he doesn't preach the scriptures? That's not witnessing. Should those conversations be had? Sometimes they should, if you can handle them respectfully. If, you can, if you've got a friend and you're like, you're going to a church where you're not hearing the truth. I, I need to help you see. That is a conversation to be had, but that's not the same as witnessing. Okay, get really, really sensitive. You've got a family member, you've got a friend who's Catholic. You don't go up to him and say, how can you believe that the Pope speaks for God? How can you do that? That's not witnessing. That's not defending the faith. Trust me, I've got, I grew up in Catholic part of Texas. You know, three quarters of my friends were Catholic. I'm very familiar with that denomination. And I've got plenty of issues with that theology. But, okay, here's where you might really, really disagree with me, but I believe this with every fiber of my being, a person can go to a church that's led by a charlatan and still go to heaven if they believe that Jesus died for their sins, if they trust him for salvation. A person, let's see how many of you say amen to this, uh, a, person, a person can pray to saints and pray the rosary and, and believe every word the Pope says and even pray to Mary, but if they believe the blood of Jesus washes away their sins, they're absolutely right. Blood of Jesus washes away their sins. There's not an IQ test or a theology test to get into heaven. Now, again, you can have those discussions. I think those are important discussions to be had. If you love somebody, as long as you're respectful about it, as long as you admit, you know, when we get to heaven, there's, I'm sure God's going to show us where we Baptists were wrong about this or that too. <laughs> Amen. But arguing your church is better than their church is not witnessing. So let me just close with this. Let's always remember the example of Jesus. In the uh, last 24 hours of his life, what did Jesus do? He walked away from a lot of battles that he could have easily won. Big mob comes with torches in the middle of the night. He said it himself. I could call down legions of angels. They'd just wipe you out. He didn't do it. They took him 
to the Sanhedrin. Seventy men full of themselves, accusing him of things he didn't do. Man, when I read that, even I, even been a Christian most of my life, I still read it and go, come on, Jesus, just defend yourself a little. But he doesn't. And then he stands before Pilate. And Pilate is a representative of just a government that has done horrible things to Jesus' people, and he has the power to set him free, and all Jesus has to do is just convince this man who wants to believe that Jesus is innocent, that he's innocent, and he doesn't say a word in his own defense. Why? Because he knew which battle mattered the most. The battle that mattered the most was, if I die, then they are saved. If I die, then Satan is defeated. If I, if I get distracted on these smaller battles that would be very much gratifying for me personally, then they lose everything. He chose the right battle. And that's what we should do. So, let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you for sending Jesus on a rescue mission for us. And Jesus, we thank you for choosing to fight the ultimate battle, even at ultimate cost to you. And Lord, we just ask for wisdom. We want to approach unbelievers in a way that is wise. And I think all of us can admit there have been times when we haven't. So teach us that kind of wisdom and help us, Lord, to train up uh, godly men and women to represent you well in their workplaces and their families. Uh, in their friend groups and school campuses and everywhere you send us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.